continuing our series in Philippians, and let's welcome Mr. Ostrand. Good morning. Um, can we hear? Kind of? It's going? Okay. Okay. Um, it's good to be here. Um, it's always a daunting task uh, to be given the responsibility uh, to speak at chapel, but it's also a very great privilege. And so um, thank you for what has been sung. Thank you for what has been prayed. And I'm in agreement, amen, that the Lord would, would use this time for his purposes. Um, <clears throat> I'm very thankful that Mr. Teeson asked me to focus primarily on uh, ancient basket weaving in the Mediterranean and the Mesopotamian area. Uh, basket weaving is a fascinating thing, and so I think you should take good notes because if I were to come up here and to start speaking extensively about the history of something that probably most of you have no interest in, it would be really hard to hear, wouldn't it? I don't know what he's talking about. I don't know what a cross stitch is. I don't know what papyrus is. I don't, what's he talking about? Okay, it makes no sense. Unfortunately, what we're going to be sharing today could, you could have the same response. I'm going to read just a, a short passage when Paul writes to the Corinthians and he says this, a person without the Spirit does not accept the things that come from the Spirit, but considers them foolishness. And they cannot understand them because they're discerned only through the Spirit of God. So as we work our way through this letter of Paul that he wrote to a church, he's 800 miles away in a prison in Italy, and he's writing to northern Greece, Macedonia area. And you can tell the way he writes, he loves these people. He cares for these people. And I can only imagine what it would have been like when they read this letter to these believers. And, and I'm guessing <laughs> they, they didn't just sit back in the corner and kind of, you know, okay, another letter from Paul. I'm pretty sure they leaned in. It's from Paul. What, what does he say? In a sense, he's their leader. He's their pastor. He's the one who has taught them. He's the one who has preached the gospel to them. And we can assume that many of them believed. They're not the same people they once were. They used to love sin. They don't love sin anymore. They actually used to be indifferent or even hatred of God. Now they love God. Something's changed in these people. And so what he does then is he says, because of what God is doing and has done in your life, I have some counsel for you. I have some advice for you. So, so understand 
if, if you're a basket weaving enthusiast, maybe that would be really interesting to hear about ancient basket weaving, but I'm not. And I'm guessing most of you aren't either. It would be foolishness to us to hear it. So, so understand, I don't come today basically trying to teach what a man wrote to a group of people centuries ago because I have some new interpretation we're trying to understand what did he write and how is it for their benefit and he's writing to believers the assumption that their hope is in the risen Christ if you talk theology these people have come to a point of they've been justified they've been declared righteous by God and I don't even understand it. I mean, I can tell you what Scripture says, but they've become justified by faith. By the grace of God, through their faith, and through preaching. And so later on, Paul writes in, in Romans, he says, how will anybody know if we don't preach? They won't know. How, how will they believe? And then how will anyone uh, be able to preach if they're not sent? And so this is his passion. So to kind of retrace, just real quick, review, where have we been in Philippians? Paul is writing a letter, likely from a jail in Rome, to a group of people far, far away, 800 miles. While he's in that jail, he starts his letter kind of talking about himself. It's kind, of, uh, it's kind of biographical. And if you remember the previous speakers, Mr. Woods and Mr. Falk and Mr. Zanger and all kinds of people that have taught us this, <clears throat> this passage of Scripture, you can tell he loves those people. He's thankful for them. And he has a prayer. He says that your love may abound with knowledge and discernment so you may approve what is excellent and pure and blameless that you would be filled with the fruit of righteousness. That's, that's his prayer for these people. That's why he's writing this letter in, in many parts. But if you remember when Mr. Falk was teaching, he says, Paul's got a problem because he's in jail. He says, I want to be with you guys, but he says, I don't know if I will be or not. He's not even sure. <laughs> he's not even sure if he'll be alive. And it doesn't terrify him. It actually intrigues him. He says, because if they put me to death, he says, that's a win-win because I get to be with Christ. The one who cleanses me from all unrighteousness. My Lord, my master, that's who I get to go be with. He says, but I don't think, I don't think that's probably going to happen. I think I'm going to survive for a while. And I don't know, I read in a commentary, he probably lived anywhere from two to five years after he wrote this. But he says, it's better for you if I stick around. It's better for you if I stay and I keep, hopefully I get to come spend time with you, keep teaching you. Maybe I can write more letters to you. But he says, I, I think that's what's going to happen. So he says, to live is to be with Christ, or, or to, to be with Christ is to die is gain. So if he goes to be with Christ or as he lives, he gets to continue to preach the gospel um, that is his passion, that, that's, his, that's his purpose for living. So 
<clears throat> that takes us to where we're at today. So if you would please uh, turn to Philippians chapter 1. And um, the portion that we're going to look at today, again, is counsel for the church. Um, and ultimately, it's counsel for him and his concern because he, he's not with them. Okay? So here we go. Hopefully, I don't knock my microphone off, putting my glasses on and off all day. So, Philippians 1, 27 through 30 says this. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. And not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it is granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Let's pause for prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We pray that it would do a mighty work in us even today. We pray that you'd give us eyes to see and ears to hear the truth of your glorious gospel. Uh, make us ready for the days that lie ahead. I pray that you would help us to stand firm and we'd be unwavering in our devotion and commitment to you. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. If you look at the very beginning of our passage, and it depends on your translation, but what's the first word in verse 27? Just shout it out. You know I'm a teacher, so I, I, I look for interaction. Only. Only is an interesting word to start. Okay? Can you imagine if it's uh, fourth and two? If we get a first down, we keep running the clock, we hold on for the win. It's a huge point in the game. And Mr. Falk comes into the huddle and he says, here's what we're going to do. Only you'd be tuned in. It'd be like the most important thing, the bottom line, the key ingredient here. Focus on this. Okay, There's, there's emphasis on the first word. So as Paul's away from these people, He's not sure how they're doing. He, he doesn't have email. He doesn't have social media. So he's wondering, while I'm gone, what's going to happen to you people in this Roman province of, of Philippi? I've often said this, and I don't know, sorry, I think of a lot in terms of athletic analogy, so it's probably redundant. But I've often said, um, if a coach is really, really doing their job well, we could have practice today in volleyball or football with zero coaches present or cross country, whatever sport you're in. You could have practice today with no coaches present and you could get a lot accomplished. Now, why would that be? Because you know that if coaches did not come to the practice, it could be, you know, people, I think about basketball, you see people like shooting half court shots and trying to dunk and 
those really aren't very helpful for your game, are they? We don't make a living out here like, oh, they left me open, coach. I'm shooting the half quarter. I've seen practices that kind of just, when there's not structure, they just kind of fall apart. But if a coach has really done their job, I would hope, at least in football, you guys know our tackling drills. You know individual work we need to do. You know what offensive schemes we need to get better at. Go do it. You don't need us to tell you how. If you indeed have been trained and internalized, this is what we are about. So as Paul is away from this church, is it going to fly apart? Are they going to rebel? Are they going to feel the heat of persecution? Are they going to say, you know what, it's not worth it, I'm out. Or is he going to come back and is he going to see, man, you guys just kept growing. You kept improving. You kept growing in righteousness. That, that's his concern. So he writes this letter. So he's giving them some counsel. So if, if the football coaches were gone today and Mr. Falk wrote a note to the senior and says, guys, here's what we have to get done today. Get it done. That's kind of what he's doing here. This is key information for you in your Christian walk, Philippians, from Paul. And he says, only, emphatic. Well, what's the first thing he says? <laughs> Let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Let your manner of life be worthy. Conduct yourselves in a Christian way, in a crooked and twisted and perverse generation. This was not written to us, but this was written for our benefit. His instructions that he's giving to this church If indeed you have tasted and seen the Lord is good, this is key information for us. Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I remember, I think, one of the first times, and I don't know why, I remember Mr. Thiessen, I think, teaching in a chapel. And I'd always heard about the word orthodoxy. The Orthodox Church, this, that, or or that's an unorthodox method of, you know, doing something but then he also talked about something called orthopraxy and it was like what's that well really what he's saying is because of what you believe your orthodox right belief they believe the gospel of jesus christ it should affect how you behave so right thinking and right doctrine should indeed lead us to right behavior, right conduct, okay? When it doesn't, we have a word for that. It's called hypocrisy. (laughs) Well, Mr. O, you say this, but you always do this. Paul's writing to Mr. O and saying, knock it off. Stop saying one thing that, oh, I believe this, this is important to me, and then over here you do the exact opposite thing. That's what he's, what he's talking about. So the essential issue. Um, conduct yourselves in a Christian way in a very unchristian environment. Bottom line, if you say you're Christian, act like one. Your behavior should be consistent with your confession. That's what he's getting at. Okay, if you are a note taker and if you have to do notes for chapel, um, I'll help you out here a little bit. 
the main theme, what we're going to look at in the next few moments here, is characteristics. There's four characteristics that he's going to point to in this that point to a life that matches their faith. Four characteristics of a life that is going to be consistent or matching your faith. The first thing we see, and I'm going to be reading the same passage over because it kind of connects. It's not like individual sentences. But in verse 27, it says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear that you are standing firm. Okay? They're all starting with S. Standing firm is your first one. First characteristic of a life that matches what we say we believe, if indeed we say we are followers of Christ, is that we would stand firm. Apparently, and I don't speak multiple languages, but when you read about people who do, apparently this language and this usage would have been mostly considered to be um, getting to people think about a soldier who would stand guard at their post. Has anyone ever seen the Tomb of the Unknown Soldier in Washington, D.C.? few people? It's a curious place. Uh, I've been there multiple times. You have soldiers that guard a tomb full of dead men's bones 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. They walk back and forth in great detail. They turn and they guard the tomb. They don't leave, typically. Okay? Um, they, they are there. Rain, snow, heat, that's what they do. It's considered one of the most uh, prestigious posts to have. They stand firm. And if someone threatens that site to desecrate it, they defend it. Okay? So the first thing is to stand firm. No compromise with error or sin or temptation. Um, <clears throat> I've mentioned it in some of my classes so the older kids know, but I, I've had several uh, students who are now no longer students here who are asking questions. Coach, how do I stand firm? They're in college right now. And they are seeing a torrent of teaching and worldview that is contrary to God's word. And they're, they're, they're asking, how do I do this? I, I want to stand firm, but how do I do it? Uh, do I get kicked out of this class? Do, do I go talk to my professor? How, how do I do this? What Paul's telling these believers is do not compromise. Your loyalty to the Lord is going to result in godliness, purity, and virtue. There will be all kinds of people who will try to come along, and they will even say they're your friends, but they want you to compromise. They don't want you to stand firm, probably because they're not standing firm, if they're even believers, and they feel a lot better when no one stands firm. Let's all compromise together. If we all drift a little further away and we all stay in this group, then, uh, then we all don't feel so bad. Understand that if you stand firm, it's probably going to be lonely. There's probably not going to be very many people who are going to stand with you. But that's not the point, okay? We're not taking a vote. 
of whether we should or shouldn't, whether I feel like it or not. Paul says, only (laughs) let your conduct be worthy of the gospel, and the first way you do that is to stand firm. Stand firm in the faith. Resist corrupting doctrine. Be unyielding to being faithful. Scripture informs us here, how do I do that? A passage that people oftentimes will preach through and teach through is from Ephesians 6. It's talking about imagery of going into battle, but it's not a battle of flesh and blood. It's a battle of principalities and powers and ideas. And it says the first thing that you have to do if you go in to put on the full armor of God is to put on the belt of truth. I don't, I don't know if you get tired of hearing people at our school talk about, you know, it's truth. We want to have great worldview. We want to understand truth. Truth's so important. Guys, there's a reason we talk about truth a lot. Because if you don't understand what is true, you're not going to stand firm. Because you're not going to know. Okay? Some of you heard me say this multiple times. But if you go home and your parents were to ask you, how was school and what did you learn today? A lot of times students will say, it's fine. You know, what did you learn? Nothing. Because you don't know what you're being taught oftentimes. I didn't know what I was being taught until maybe 10, 15, 20 years later. I look back to the teaching I received when I was your age and I'm like, that's heresy. That is absolute heresy error that I was being taught I just didn't know so more than likely the belt of truth was not buckled around my waist because I couldn't discern it we don't want that for you you won't be able to stand firm unless you have the belt of truth this is what also it uh, Paul writes in first Timothy he says now the spirit expressly says in later times some will depart from the faith devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons. Juniors, this should be familiar. Colossians 2.8, see to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit, according to human tradition and elemental spirits of the world and not according to Christ. So if we're going to stand firm, we've got to know what the truth is. Okay? Be, be aggressive in your classes. If every day you go into class, you sit in the same seat, you try not to be noticed, you try to sit there and just get through it so you can be done, you're not going to discover much truth. Ask your teachers hard questions. We may not know. We'll figure it out. We'll go find it. Be hungry to understand. Be hungry to know truth. It's the only way you're going to stand firm. As we go further into Paul's directives for the Philippians, he says, may I hear that you're standing firm, okay, latter part of verse 27, stand firm in one spirit with one mind. Well, that's pretty simple. (laughs) Single-mindedness. The second characteristic of someone whose faith or whose behavior matches their faith They stand firm and they're single-minded. Don't confuse it with narrow-minded, okay? Not stubborn, not arrogant, but single-minded. 
Single-minded, the opposite, James 1, 8 says, the double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. Bottom line, it's like this. A double-minded man, he goes to church and says, oh yeah, I believe this stuff. Yeah, this is really important. But then they step over into the world and like, I love the world. The world's so fun. Those people are so cool. They have so much fun. And then oh, they step back over here and like, oh yeah, I got to do my youth group stuff because you know, people expect me to. But man, I love the world over here. That's double-minded. That's double-minded. Single-minded, our devotion is not divided. Oftentimes, we would look at this and talk about the idea of being united. And, and there's nothing greater than to have someone else whose single focus in life is the glory of Christ and your two 16-year-olds, and that's your same focus. Like, hey, let's get together. Let's, let's read Scripture. Hey, yeah, let's, let's go and, and, and spend time and let's, let's talk about things like this. The first time I met people who did that, I, I grew up with people who went to parties where it was all about getting drunk and who you could sleep with. That's, that's the crowd that I went to school with. God in His grace, He just kept me away from it. And so there's a lot of nights I'm home with mom and dad. A lot of Saturday nights there. And it was like, you know what? I'd rather be there. I, he gave me an aversion for that crowd. I don't know why. He just, I just didn't want to be in it. But then in college, I started meeting people who they said, hey, you guys want to get together? We're reading through a particular book of the Bible, and we'd go into dorm rooms, and we'd start reading Scripture. And we would pray. Not just like, God, thanks for the you know, good day stuff, but like they would just pray for hours. And I'm like, these people are peculiar. But they had a single focus. They were single-minded, okay? That's what they were talking about. Um, it's interesting, and I think that needs to be shared real quickly. Um, unity can be way overrated if we don't understand it. Uh, there's all kinds of people who will talk about, you know, we just want unity, we just want unity, we just want unity. Guys, MS-13, one of the most violent gangs in the United States, I think they're very united. Unity is not a good thing unless the unity has a common cause that is a good thing. Are you with me? Otherwise, you're looking at conformity or uniformity. We all look the same, act the same, talk the same, do all the same stuff. But the object of your unity, that's the key. It's the same thing for faith. I, I really don't care if you have faith in something that is an idol. I hope you don't have faith in it. What I hope your faith is in is in the one true God, the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's what our faith is to be in. So we, we have to be careful. Um, you know, we will hear people talk about unity, but it's a great thing. But ultimately, the only reason we're united is because it pre is preceded by doctrine. Proper teaching. Proper truth. So unless we have truth buckled on, we will easily not be single-minded because we're going to have all these other things competing for our attention. Probably one of the greatest causes of disunity is think about two people who will be unswerving in their quest to be the rightest person in the conversation. 
I'm, I'm right. No, you're not. I'm right. No, I'm not. So we have to understand that if it's a preference, die to yourself. Die to yourself if it's just a preference. If it is primary doctrine, if someone says, you know, I'm really not sure Jesus was born of a virgin. I don't, does it really matter? Yes, it matters. It's Holy Scripture. <laughs> it matters. Those are the things that have to unite us. So if you don't understand doctrine, if you don't understand biblical teaching, it's going to be really hard to be united around a single-minded mission of what God has called us to. Okay, so we stand and we're united in one spirit, one mind. Now, here's the beauty of it. When you become united around a cause, the cause of the gospel of Jesus Christ, your foundation is sure, it is true. What's cool is then you look to the side and it's like someone else is doing the same thing. The next S, you strive. You strive together. Striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. What does it mean to strive? Here's a definition. To struggle or fight vigorously. You work alongside one another, engaged in a common objective. An obvious example of that would be athletic teams. You strive side by side. <laughs> Yesterday, I, uh, in our position group, we're, we're asking some of our defensive linemen a tall order. We practiced driving as low as we could, as hard as we could, into two offensive linemen that we're going to see this Friday night. And what that's going to mean is they're going to have an immense amount of contact and they're probably not going to get very many tackles, probably. Because that's what it requires. Now, if one of my guys, one of our defensive linemen, who said, Coach, how come I have to do that? It doesn't seem fair that those linebackers get their name in the paper. Ooh, 16 tackles. Well, how come I don't? They don't do that. They don't do that because they're striving together. The objective, the greater objective, is way more important than any trivial, like, how come I don't get this or that? So when we strive together, if we truly have an overarching goal, ultimately the name of Christ, the gospel of Jesus Christ, trivial matters don't come up. Who cares? The little stuff fades away. The objective is the most important. How do we get there? What do I need, coach? What, what, what do you need me to do, coach? If you need me to do that all game long, I'll do it. We just want the team to be successful. As you continue on, and time's getting away from us, in verse 28, it says, as you strive side by side, other believers, for the faith of the gospel, it says, and not be frightened, not frightened in anything by your opponents. Okay, what those college students I mentioned, it's tough when you're in a room, a lecture hall, and a professor is mocking you and what you believe. That's opposition. That's opposition. But he's, he's warning them, and he's, he's encouraging them, exhorting them. That when you have opposition, don't be afraid. <laughs> he says, 
if, if there's no opponent, there's no, there's no unity. I mean, you don't have to be united if there's no opposition. You're going to face opposition. This is what it says in Jude 3. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about your common salvation, I find it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered <clears throat> to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord. When that letter is written, it says there's opponents that have crept in and they're trying to pervert truth. Don't be afraid. Actually, what it proves, if you continue to read, <laughs> this proves it's a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation. If you face no opposition, that's a concern. We're promised we're going to face opposition. We've got to move on. The last S of the four signs is suffering. Verse 29, For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ that you should not only believe in Him, but also suffer for His sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. Paul and the believers in Philippi have been gifted with faith, in Christ, and they've been gifted with suffering. He calls them a gracious gift. 1 Peter 4 says this about suffering. Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you are insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed. For the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. Suffering, persecution, Scripture tells us to expect it. It tells us to rejoice in it and to entrust it to God. Now, bear in mind, if you're going out and being someone who stirs up dissension, you need to evaluate. <laughs> Am I being persecuted? How come everybody always is picking on me? That's a dangerous question to ask. It might be you're the problem. Okay? How come no one talks to me? Maybe you're not friendly. Okay? We're not talking about that. What we're talking about is God uses suffering, and it, Paul says it's a gracious gift that comes our way. Um, <clears throat> I'm going to read something here as we get close to the end. And um, I think I am. Apparently I'm not. Um, essentially what it is, it's, it's, a, it's a teaching that John Piper had written. I've, I kept it in my files from years ago. I think it's clear back from 2009 when I saw it. But he says, don't waste your suffering. In other words, God is using difficulty for his purposes. Hebrews 5.8 says, Jesus, although he was without sin, learned obedience through what he suffered. Understand, most of the time when you think about someone suffering, you think about someone doing something to cause them harm. 
That's not how God uses suffering. He uses it to do us good. It purifies us from idols. We recognize that things that we thought once were really important really aren't. And maybe you can best summarize as this. God knows best the needs of his beloved. Suffering increases our trust in a holy and righteous God. Matthew 5, 1 through 12 says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So, we need to get to you guys, to e-groups, but just remember... Paul's admonition to these believers, I'm not there, but I want you to stand firm. I want you to strive with each other side by side for the faith of the gospel. And as when suffering comes, understand God's using it for his purposes. He's changing us. He's sanctifying us. He's fashioning us um, and transforming our lives. So, as you go to e-groups, I don't know, you can take anything that seems to have, have been causing you to think, but I wrote two questions down. Evaluate, and, and maybe you can do this publicly, maybe you have to do it privately, but evaluate, is your manner of life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And if not, where do you need to confess and repent of sin? Is your manner of life worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ? And where do we need to confess and repent of sin? Secondly, how can we encourage one another to stand for truth and strive together in the gospel? You've got classmates. You've got other people in, in different classes in the same school. I would hope that you would be striving and encouraging and exhorting one another. Not a bunch of lone rangers doing your own thing. So how can we encourage one another to stand for truth and strive for the gospel? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for how gracious you are to reveal truth to us through Holy Scripture. Uh, we pray that we would be people who would evaluate what is our hope and trust in. I pray that we would trust only in the finished blood of of Jesus Christ that takes away the sin that so easily entangles us and that we would, by faith, walk in your ways. Help us to live a life and have conduct that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. You deserve the obedience. You deserve the glory. 